Side Street Stories presents Three by Night. What follows are three short tales to keep you company while we prepare to continue our journey with John and his witness. Stay tuned for the second half of The Witness of Kitab Al-Azif. We sit around our old clubhouse in the woods, getting high. Five years ago, we kept spiders in mason jars. We stashed toys here so our brothers wouldn't steal them. We held secret meetings for our monster club, a kind of neighborhood watch for the creatures we dreamed up. Then one day, Mikey brought his dad's rum. Then Devon showed up with a porn video on his smartphone. Before you knew it, the four of us were adolescents. Mikey, D, and myself grew up anyway. We talk about Casey Starkley's tits and sports cars and who's scoring the next dime bag. Freddy's quiet, just sits there smoking. When he speaks, it's all nonsense. Freddy's always telling us about stuff that doesn't exist. Did you know Finley Brightson wrote The Broke Nail Trick before Zappa found his groove? No kidding. Finley, man, was fucking on the experimental rock scene before anyone else. There is no Finley Brightson. Dee googled it. Called Freddy out. Freddy got pissed. Didn't come around for a week. I guess we keep him around because we remember a different, younger Freddy. What he was like when we were kids. He'd make us start over if he didn't like the way the story was going for our G.I. Joes. He'd create these elaborate traps for the monsters. He had some kind of vision for things, all the time. I mean, it was awesome. Thinking about it now, I wouldn't have been surprised if he'd become the next big movie director. The next Stephen King. His imagination was just big, all the time. But lately, we think maybe he'll be lucky if he doesn't end up shuffling down the street in rags. Too crazy to even beg for change. It's sad. Did you guys hear about Casey Starkley's mom? Totally hospitalized. She got demented on prescription pain meds one night and stabbed Casey's sister to death. How fucked up is that? Casey doesn't even have a sister. We know that. We used to think he was fucking with us, just high and spouting nonsense, not letting us in on the joke. It pissed us off. Did you guys know about this artist, Vant Showalter? He painted a big red square on the plaza by a building, wrote Trespasser under it, signed his name in the bottom corner, then climbed to the roof. You'll never guess where he landed. Stop, we say. It's not even funny. You're just being dumb. But lately, his stories have been getting worse. Violent. Weird. Freaky. Then tonight, we're all sitting around the clubhouse, baked as usual, and he says, You guys know I'm not Freddy, right? Mikey D and I trade looks. You guys know I'm a monster. He takes a hit. Croaks out. The club failed. Blows smoke. I've come through to this place from my own. A place similar, but different. And tonight I'm bringing my friends through. And we hear, echoing through the woods, voices that sound like our own. 
the Canadian. Ed lost our softball at the end of last summer. He threw it too wild and it landed on the neighbor's grass and he didn't want to go get it because all the neighbors do is yell at him. That'll change, he said, staring into their yard but unwilling to climb the chain link fence. We could see the ball resting there in the late evening grass, white and unreachable. You'll see, little man. I'm going to be better soon. I'm going to be different. So we started tossing empty whiskey bottles around instead. The thing is, the plastic bottles don't throw right, so you gotta be careful not to break the glass ones. They can land on the grass okay, but you wanna make sure you're not standing too near the sidewalk or that they don't hit a tree or the back of the house. We have to avoid whole patches of lawn because of the broken glass. From where Dad hit something like one of Mom's bricks she used to mark out the old garden. So we play way out back, where the lawn opens up and we've got this big space for toss the bottle. I like it better out there, and I think Dad does too. Our backyard stretches out forever, so you can't really see a lot of the neighbor's houses, just the one with our softball behind it. And we only play at night, because that's the only time Dad isn't working or sleeping, or going crazy with his music and drink. We use flashlights, but your eyes have to be quick on the bottle, with the way they gleam in the thin light from the neighbor's houses, and maybe sometimes the softness of the moon. Tonight, Dad says he's run out of bedtime stories and he's already sold off all of my books for drink. So he'll tell me about the thing Grandpa Ajax used to tell him about when he was a little boy and getting ready for bed. Dad says the Canadian is a monster that comes to get you when you're old enough. Dad says the Canadian crawls inside you and makes a nest of your guts. Night-night. He says and flicks the light off and shuts the door. I lie awake in the dark and listen to Dad play his rock music in the living room. I don't fall asleep for a long, long time. A few nights later, Dad comes into my room and wakes me up. His hair is sticking out and sweat's pouring from his skin and his eyes are rolling around in his head. He throws open the window and stands in the block of the streetlight. All those fuckers out there think they know what's best. They don't know. They don't see. I miss your mom so much, little man. So goddamn much. He slumps on the edge of my bed, quiet and still for a full minute. Hey, hey, you want to play toss the bottle? I tell him it's really late and I've got school in the morning. Sorry, little man. Can't let you go in tomorrow, he says. I forgot to tell you. The Canadians ate all the teachers, all the janitors, even the principal. No one's left at school. So Dad puts me into jeans and a sweater, holds my hand, and he leads me outside. The whole time he's saying how the Canadians eating all the people in the neighborhood, too. He says that's why all the house lights are out. No people left. He says the Canadian ate all the other adults. That he ate the Beams and the Walkers and the Brown Foremans and the Williamses and the Danielses. I tell him I'm not as young as he thinks I am, 
but he just shrugs. Out here, it's just after the last snow. After the last little flakes came down like dying moths. There's only clumps of dirty brown stuff left and everything's muddy and the sky looks like it'll never heal right. This is springtime, but it feels like fall to me. You can still see the old softball in the neighbor's yard now. But we play with the bottles. Our house is one gray house in a neighborhood full of gray houses, each one falling apart around the owners. Or maybe now that the Canadians moved in, they're all empty except for ours. It sure feels that way. It used to be we went out front and looked up and down the street at all the houses with our lights on, windows and porches, and Dad wouldn't say anything about it, just shake his head. Or maybe sometimes he'd double swear, like, Fucking assholes, anyway. But lately we started noticing more and more houses don't have any lights on at all, so we don't even go around front. Dad says it must be the Canadian, but not to worry. He'll take care of me. Canadian whiskey's the worst, Dad says. You get it so cheap and it just eats you from the inside out because you drink more of it that way. All the bottles we throw are Canadian whiskey bottles. The labels are coming apart or scratching up or peeling off, but I can still read them. Dad says if it weren't for the whiskey, he would have left long ago because he gets so scared sometimes he can't eat or sleep or even breathe. He says the whiskey raised me, not him. He smiles because he thinks I don't know what he means by that. He thinks he's being clever with his words. My hands are scarred from all the broken glass, but I don't let him see. Learning the way of the bottle is a skill. Dad says the Canadian has teeth, but no mouth, but it can scream. Dad says the Canadian eats you from the inside out. By the time you see the signs of it, it's already too late. Dad says that's what's happened to Grandpa Ajax. What probably happened to Mom. Wherever the hell that woman is, he says. I don't remember Mom, but I think it would hurt Dad if I did, so I don't ask about her. A few nights ago, I was getting ready to go out back with Dad, but he stopped me at the door. He had this look like maybe Mom just left all over again. Hey, little man. We can't play outside just yet. The drink's gone. He must have seen some look come over my face, because he said quickly, We'll need a new bottle to throw around, right? I'll get a real good one this time, with a good grip, easy to catch, you'll see. I'll be back in an hour, don't worry. He didn't come back that night, or the next night, but on the third night he came pounding on the front door, yelling to open up. I did, and he almost spilled in, all busted down, smelling like armpit and french fries holding a large sack with two big glass bottles in it. He had a black eye, and one of his front teeth was missing. Why'd you lock the goddamn door? He said on the floor. I told him I didn't. It was unlocked. Oh. He said, and got up. He was holding his stomach and wincing, stumbling around until he found the couch and fell onto it. With his face crushed to the cushion, he said... Play Deacon Blues or something, or no, no, play that Alabama song, or no, wait, I don't care what they say about me, play the goddamn Whiskey Rock-A-Roller. I played him his music and left him alone. Later, he comes to my door and stands there like a shadow that's come unstuck from the wall. Dad says the truth is, you take little pieces of the Canadian in bit by bit, whether you like it or not. It's not just in your blood, it's in the air itself. 
You don't mean to at first, but it just keeps happening. And then what you piss and what you puke are just pieces of your insides, because the Canadian's in there now, chewing you up, making room for itself. Dad says, Think on that, little man. Just you think on that. Tonight I have to come to him, cause he doesn't come to me, so I know something's wrong. I bring a flashlight, but don't turn it on. Out back, he's standing there, a lonely figure in a dark field. He could be anyone, and when I get close he turns around and I panic and put the full beam of the flashlight on him. His eyes are like a cat's, flashy and strange. He doesn't flinch, and there's this pause where I can hear last year's dried leaves clicking together in the branches all around us. Hey there, little man, he says. I know his voice. I know the way his hair falls around his head. I know that button shirt, those jeans. I know that stance he has, like he's about to fall over at any minute. I know everything, but I don't recognize it. It's like looking at someone who's trying really hard to pretend to be something he's not. Or like a bad drawing on cheap paper. Then there's a smell, a stench like rotten beef. What are you doing? I say. I don't know what to do, so I just pretend with him. Just enjoying the night, he says. I like it out here, after everyone's finally gone. You feel so alive, you know? So real. Then the man who looks like my dad, but is not my dad, unbuttons his shirt, lifts his undershirt, and I can see the little bits of bone glinting there in the flashlight glow like plastic buttons on a stuffed animal. Teeth crisscross his skin, stuck here and there as if something were trying to chew its way out of him. Where did my mom go? I say to him. Where did she really go? Oh. Where did she go, really? Oh. He says, drawing it out. She's the one that got away. But not me, I say. But not you, he says with my dad's mouth. I've eaten your grandfather, and I've eaten your father, and I'm going to eat you too when you're old enough. I know, I say. But let's play a game anyway, huh? Okay, he says, and lowers his shirt. I'll go get that ball. Living alone. I'm on the phone telling my mom for the third time this week that, yes, Angie and I are really broken up for good this time. It's been about three months since Angie left, and we haven't traded even a single like. But then I can't even bring myself to check if we're still friends or if she's following me. I just know the last message I sent was left on red. It was always tumultuous between us, but that last time, before slamming the door, she said, I hope you die in here, you fucking prick. She'd never wished death on me before. But how do you tell that to your mom when she just called to remind you about the shrimp in the freezer? Shit, the shrimp. I tell mom I have to go and she becomes a vague voice on the other side of the phone as I hit call end. 
The apartment's small, but I have enough time to flash on all the other dinners I'd ruined because I'd forgotten about them. The kitchen still reeks of an old grease fire, a smell that hits me like new every time I come home. Fortunately, the shrimp are just thawing in a colander in the sink, but I'm more worried about how long they've been in there. Mom called, what, a few hours ago? I'd pulled the shrimp out then, but how long can you leave shrimp out for? Won't they get, like, I don't know, soggy? Moldy? Something? Curiously, the jumbo shrimp look even bigger than I remember. But this is just something that happens with new loneliness. Perspective shifts, size distorts, all the usual pieces of your life slip in and out of place. It's just one of those things, like staring too long at your own face in the mirror. The familiar becomes strange. I pop one of the shrimp into my mouth, but it doesn't taste like anything. It's big and rubbery, and I chew meaninglessly at it. Swallow the pulp whole. That bag of shrimp was in the freezer a while, and I was avoiding it since it belonged to Angie, but then Mom called to remind me about it, and I thought, what the hell? It'd be some kind of closure, right? Me eating her food? Fuck it. Fuck her. Angie laughs somewhere behind me. Some ghost memory. This happens sometimes, too. I hear her scolding me for charring the chicken, for slopping sauce all over the splashboard, for melting another plastic spatula. I hear myself tell her that I love her, and I can feel the kiss I give her to shut her up, her smiling kiss under my lips. You really are bad at this. What? Cooking, I say? Bad at everything, she says. We made love with her seated on the counter that night, that one time with a burnt spatula, drunk on cheap Cabernet, some old jazz tunes playing on the TV. But what I'm really staring at is the window above the sink, my own dark reflection superimposed over the winking lights of the city. Somewhere out there, Angie's probably got a new man. She was always too pretty for me, and here I am failing at thawing shrimp. I spot something crawling across the periphery of my vision. I don't even think to be afraid because what I'm seeing is completely absurd. The shrimp and the colander are squirming, a heap of wriggling pink bodies. And I can hear them, a sound like too much saliva. What the fuck do I do if the shrimp aren't dead? And I ate one. Had that one been alive? But no, the heap of squirming bodies isn't enough. A few stray shrimp have detached from the pile and are now crawling across the lip of the sink like inchworms, spreading out across the rest of the counter. Some of them simply plummet over the edge and land on the floor at my feet. But the mound in the colander isn't shrinking. It's pulsing now, erupting with more of them. I think of a volcano, of lava, of endless living lava. I step back, my mind switched off. There's a high keening sound coming from my mouth, but no words. My heel knocks against something small on the floor and I sweep back. I can't understand what I'm seeing. All the ones that have fallen to the kitchen floor have, I can't, but I don't, I don't have any kittens. I don't have any kittens. The fat jumbo shrimp that have fallen to the floor are changing. They flop over and their insides bubble and burst out into tiny shapeless blobs 
blobs that form themselves into something like fetuses. Fetuses that produce four tiny appendages and a tail, and then black downy tufts burst from their delicate pink skin. What they become is almost cute, something like cuddly black furred kittens, and I flash on all the cat videos Angie used to make me watch until I too was giggling like a child. Only there's something wrong with these kittens. Their limbs don't work right, the fur and skin sag a bit too much, and so they lope and drag and slide themselves along like puppets animated by ghost hands, making small circles on the floor, bumping into the bottom of the refrigerator, each other, my feet. I see all of this in what must be seconds, but it feels like the whole night. Evolution happens just within reach, and it's happening so fast. Mutation, adaptation, new life, they're thriving. They all look so weak, so pathetic, lame somehow. I reach out to pet one of them, maybe to pick it up, to see if I can help it, but it lashes back over its shoulder, and I pull my hand away quickly. A fine slit like a paper cut opening along my palm just below my pinky finger. I clamp my hand over it and back away from the tiny, needle-like teeth flashing at me on the floor, and it growls with a child's voice. There are too many pupils in its eyes. I was wrong. This is nothing like a cat. The others on the floor seem to have taken that growl as some kind of call. They all turn slowly, lamely, slumping to face me. I reach for one of the pans hanging on the wall, but the jumbo shrimp are everywhere on each surface changing, and I can't get close enough without touching one of them. The floor is covered in them now, changed, each brandishing needle-like teeth, a chorus of children's voices rising up around me. There's nowhere to back away to. Before I can come up with a plan, a series of pinpricks lances through my calf, where one of them has attached itself to my leg. It claws upward, and I lash out to bat it away, but not before it gouges the side of my hand just below my <laughs> ring finger. Blood spatters the floor. Some of them lap at it. Impossibly, I hear Angie screaming in my head, Get out! Get out! Get out! But where do I go? More of them are already crawling up my leg, sinking claws and teeth into my skin. Little knives open me up. The pain doesn't feel real. Instinctively, I check the window just to see, to confirm that what I'm experiencing is happening in the glass, but it's hard to tell. I'm simply a dark shape filled with city lights. The phone rings, vibrating in my pocket. Angie? Mom? Someone, please. Pick up the phone. Angie says from a memory, but I'm too slow. Now three of them have attached themselves to my right hand, sinking their sharp little teeth into the meat of me, and my hand peels apart, and now I can feel it, that shrimp I ate earlier twisting in my guts, like it's chewing its way through everything that is me. My mind comes back to me just in time to say the one word. Sorry. This has been a production of Side Street Stories. It is engineered and produced in Drummus Studios. Trespasser. The narrator is played by Drummus. 
Freddy was played by Aaron Efimenko. The Canadian. The Father is played by Aaron Efimenko. The Narrator is played by Drummus. Living Alone. The Narrator is played by Aaron Efimenko. The X is played by Jay Rizzo. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Side Street Stories, please subscribe, rate, review, and share.